right, y'all. So we are nearing the end of our journey in Exodus chapter 34 in a series that we have entitled God Is. And what we've been doing is we've been looking at two kind of big things. Who is God and what is God like? Who is God and what is God like? I don't know if you remember the first week that I introduced this series, I I named a quote from uh, A.W. Tozer. And this is what I said. I said, what comes to mind... What comes to mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Because here's the thing, we all have a picture of who God is. Like we all have a picture of what God is like. Now the question is, is it the right picture? Is it the true picture? Because we've been influenced a lot by a lot of different things and a lot of different people. And our hope is that this series We're going to conclude it next week by kind of really applying all of it. Our hope is that this series will really help us grasp the deep goodness and the deep character of God. And the reason we've rooted this series in Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7 is, is, well, a a few reasons. One, this is, and you may be able to help me out here because I've said this quite a bit. This is the most quoted passage of scripture in the Bible by the Bible. So writers throughout the rest of God's word keep coming back to Exodus 34, six and seven over and over and over again because this is actually one of the few places where God himself describes himself. This is God's self-disclosure statement. And now I want us to read Exodus 34, six and seven out loud together as we begin. Throw that up on the screen if you would, Todd. All right, let's, let's read this out loud together. And it says, and he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Good job. Yes, we are getting to that final line this morning. So God begins with telling us his name. He says, he proclaims his name. It's a little weird for us to do this, but he's God, so he can do this. He proclaims his name in the third person. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh. And just by proclaiming us, giving us his name, he's letting us know, hey, I'm a relational being. God's name is not actually God, it's Yahweh. He has a name, he he wants to know you. Just even in us hearing his name, we realize, oh, he has a name, he wants to know you, and he wants to be known by you. He's a relational being, but his name in and of itself carries a lot of weight. So his name, which means I am or he is, lets us know, hey, he is infinite in nature. He is all powerful. He is all knowing. He is all sufficient. Just his name alone reveals this. And then he goes on to say and get really specific. He says, hey, I'm compassionate. I'm gracious. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in love and faithfulness. And then we get to where we're going this week. We're doing all of verse seven. I mean, all of it, word by word, phrase by phrase. We're gonna dig in here. Maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. I'm so pumped about this morning. This word has just like been burning in my heart. Here's the thing. Yahweh God is so much better than any of us could ever imagine. Now, our, our views have been tainted. We, we've gotten some inaccurate pictures of God. 
Now, I know what you're thinking. God is better. Did you read that last line? Like, are you reading the same thing that I'm reading? And don't worry, we're going to unpack it. We're, we're going to look at it. Because when you look at Scripture, you can't just kind of pick and choose what, what you want to uh, look at. Now, I think a lot of times that's what we end up doing. We'll kind of pick out a few lines of Scripture to live by, and we'll kind of leave the things that we're unsure about or maybe don't like at face value. But here's the thing. I believe when we wrestle with the hard parts, and maybe we wrestle with the things that uh, at face value seem a little troublesome to us, when you dig in there and you actually discover who God is and what God is like, he's actually better and greater and more deep and robust and more loving than we could ever fathom or imagine. Because when you want a full theology of God, when you want the most beautiful, the most true picture of who God is, you have to look at the whole scope of Scripture. And I believe that when you do this, you become more familiar with the God that you're going to love even more. And that's my hope that what, what happens today. As we dig in, you actually come to know and love God more. So let's go. Look at every single verse, every single word. Maintaining love to thousands. Start at the beginning of verse 7. Now, last week, we talked about a, a Yahweh God who is abounding in love. And I love this picture we get, this, this abounding love from God. Like when you think about something that's abounding in someone, it's just overflowing from who they are. So someone who's just abounding in joy, like they can't help but be joyful. So God, he says, I'm abounding in love. I can't help but be loving. But he doesn't just stop there. He doesn't just say, hi, hey, I'm abounding in it. I'm gonna give my love to anyone and everyone. He says, hey, what I'm actually gonna do is I'm gonna maintain that love. Now we, we lose a little bit in the translation here from the Hebrew to the English. But what God is actually saying is, I'm gonna guard that love. I'm gonna watch over that love. I'm going to protect that love. So do you see what God is doing here? Hey, I'm not just abounding in love, but I'm gonna protect that love. I'm gonna do everything and anything I can to make sure that you remain in my love. He's saying, hey, I, I wanna make sure that nothing robs you of the love that I have for you. Because the reality is, is there are gonna be a lot of things in life and you've probably experienced a number of them, a lot of moments in life, a lot of things in life, they're gonna come and attack your rightful place in the presence of God in the midst of his love. It's gonna make you question his love. And God's saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm working to protect the love that I have for you. We see this portrayed all throughout scripture in the Psalms. Psalm 40, verse 11 says this. It says, do not withhold your mercy from me, May your love and faithfulness always protect me. So here's the big takeaway from this line if you're taking notes. Maintaining love to thousands. God wants to make sure that every single person knows his love, remains in his love, knows his love and remains in his love. Now he continues. Continue on, let's go. Verse seven, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, let me ask you this, forgiving in the context of the Bible, like spirituality, like when you think about forgiveness, does your mind kind of track towards Jesus and the New Testament, or do you think about Yahweh, God the Father of the, of the Old Testament? Where do you kind of naturally go when you think about this idea of forgiveness? If you're anything like me, for, for most of my journey, I kind of I drift towards Jesus and the New Testament, but here's the reality, Yahweh God, he is forgiving from beginning to end. 
Now, one of my hopes of this series is actually that kind of the false narrative would be crushed, that the God of the Old Testament is this angry, grouchy, like quick-tempered dad, and the God of the New Testament in Jesus is this enlightened, peaceful, forgiving son who's, you know, come up with all these crazy ideas about grace and forgiveness. It's just not, it's just not true. Yahweh God, both the Father and the Son, are compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. Both are forgiving. In fact, the word forgiving or forgiveness, before Jesus ever arrives on the scene, before Jesus ever comes on the scene as a baby in the Gospels, the word forgiving is used 658 times up to that point. 658 times. This theme and this heart of forgiveness It runs from beginning to end. It runs cover to cover. Like this is who God is. He is forgiving in nature. One Old Testament scholar, as he was actually reflecting upon Exodus 34, verse seven, he said this. There's a slide for this one. It says, the New Testament doctrine of forgiveness, have to remember, he's thinking about Exodus 34 here. The New Testament doctrine of forgiveness of sins on which the promise of eternal life so decidedly depends flows from the very nature of God. He does not reluctantly forgive sins himself and others. He does so eagerly as a manifestation of his character. See that in your mind. As a manifestation of his character, he is forgiving and he delights in doing so. Like forgiving is God's delight. Forgiveness just flows from who he is. And now this word forgiveness, it actually means to lift, to to carry, to take away. So this word in and of itself is giving us a picture of what God does with our sin. He takes it away. He lifts the heavy burden off off of our shoulders and he puts it on his. Can't you already in Exodus 34, like begin to see like the allusions to Jesus? what Jesus is eventually gonna do on the cross here, all the way in Exodus 34. You can take that down if it's not already. Now, what exactly is God forgiving? Well, he names it pretty plainly. Wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Now, I don't know if you're a nerd like me. I found this really interesting this week. I'm like, why does he name all three things? He didn't just simply name sin. It would cover it all. But I think this is really important. I think this is actually very intentional. Makes sense. God would be intentional with what he's saying. I think God is just showing us how forgiving he is. Because what he's doing here is he's essentially naming anything that could possibly go wrong. Any way that we could, could thwart or mess up his plan for our lives with him. He says, hey, I'm willing to forgive it. He says wickedness, which is to turn aside from what is good is right, or what is good or what is right. Rebellion, which is kind of even more uh, defiant. He says this is a willful violation of a covenant. When you, when you turn your back on a relationship or sin, hey, any sort of moral failure, anytime you miss the mark, do you see what God is doing here? He is willing to forgive anyone for anything. Anyone for anything, any time where you have turned from what you know is right, any moment where you've turned from what you know is good, he's willing to forgive it. 
Any moment where you've turned your back on someone, he's willing to forgive it. Any time that you've turned your back on him, he's willing to forgive it. Any time you've done something wrong, God is willing to forgive it. However you define what you've done, however you define where you've been, Yahweh God is willing to forgive. Remember, this is a description of his character. It's who he is. So God doesn't just forgive, like he is forgiving. Like this is who he is in his heart. Can you just sense and see the buildup towards Jesus? Now, let's spend a little bit of time unpacking the line that has probably left most of us feeling uncomfortable each week that we've said this out loud. Yet, okay, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the son of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. So Yahweh is all of those things that we've talked about up to this point. He, he is compassionate and gracious. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in love and faithfulness. He does forgive, but he is also just. God is just, Yahweh is just. He is willing to forgive anyone for anything. But there are people who don't want his forgiveness. For one reason or another, there are people who do not want Yahweh's forgiveness. Now, I think there's a couple categories. I think some people just simply deny that they are sinful. And I think we see this often in our modern world and in our modern culture where tolerance is like the highest of virtues. You do you, I'll do me. However you wanna live, that's great. However I wanna live, that's great. And so when you live in a culture where tolerance is the highest of virtues, it's not surprising that you find people who deny that sin is a real thing. This is how one author put it that I read this week said this, and I quote, the idea that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, that each of us is born bent, that something deep in our core is warped out of shape. This is out of step with our time. This is a hangover from a religious, traditional world that we so desperately want to move on from. It's a kind of cultural heresy in a new post-Christian world. World. I don't know if this sounds familiar to the moment that we find ourselves in right now, but I see it, I feel it, I sense it. Now, what's the fruit of this kind of living? What's, what's the actual fruit of this kind of thinking? Well, the author goes on to say this, because our society denies that all have sinned, it's forced to blame somebody else for all the evils of the world. So listen to talk radio for five minutes. The political right blames the ACLU, illegal immigrants and Muslims. The political left blames religion, unsophisticated folks from small town and hedge fund managers. Whatever the issue, it's somebody else's fault. And this ongoing denial is deeply fracturing our society. And even more so, it's fracturing our relationship with God. If we refuse to admit that we are sinful, then we can't receive Yahweh's forgiveness. Now, there's others in another category who I think acknowledge or at least believe, hey, there's something broken going on with human beings. Um, they realize like, hey, what I do has an impact on others, but they simply don't care. So they're unapologetic. They're, they're unrepentant in their actions. So no matter what my sin does, I don't care about the collateral damage to others. 
They simply don't care. So some who deny that sin exists, some who simply do not care, what do we do with that, right? Like, what do we do with that? Well, here's the thing. Yahweh is the one that's gonna deal with that. Yahweh is the one that will deal with all the sin and all the evil in our world. Which brings me to my next point. God's justice is a good thing. God's justice is a good thing. So although you might cringe a little bit when, when you hear, oh, he does not leave the guilty unpunished, this is actually a good thing. And if I had to guess, you've probably felt some of these things deep within you. You, you probably ache for this, this same thing that Yahweh is saying right here. It's that moment when you say, that's, that's not how it should be. That's not right. When you see evil around you or in the world, you say, that is not how it should be. That's, that's Yahweh's justice flowing through you. And it's a good thing. Now, if you're new to life with God or new to church, or maybe you just need this reminder, God's end goal is a world without evil. Like that's his end goal, a world without sin and a world without evil. This, this was the original plan. This was the original idea. And here's the thing, one day it's gonna happen. One day it will happen. Yahweh's justice isn't about retribution or, or payback or a vendetta. It's about the healing and the renewal of the world. Removing all evil, removing all sickness, removing all pain. This is what he's going after. God aches for this, and I think that we ache for it. A world one day with no sin. A world one day without the byproduct of sin, which is evil. No sin, no evil. Life as God intended it. We long for it. I hope we long for it. I long for it. A world one day where no one is taken advantage of where there's no corruption, there's no abuse, there's no shootings, there's no violence at all, there's no racism, there's no misogyny, there's no exploitation of women and children, there's no anxiety, no depression, no mental illness, no divorce or betrayal, no breakdown in the family, no fatherless children, no evil at all. How many of you long for this? How many of you ache for this? For those of you that are followers of Jesus, one day this will be your reality. Amen. This will be our reality. This is gonna be the world that we experience forever with Yahweh God, our creator, because he is just. Yahweh is just. Because he will put an end to evil and sin once and for all. Because the judge will finally judge and we want justice. Now let's, let's kind of review up to this point. Because Yahweh is forgiving, because Yahweh is forgiving, remember that, we don't have to cower in fear one day and dread Jesus' return. We, we can take our wickedness, we can take our rebellion, we can take our sin straight to him knowing that he took it upon his shoulders. And because Yahweh is also just, because he's also just, we can look forward to the day when Jesus will return, when he will banish evil forever, and he will lead humanity into the glorious picture 
that we were made for in the first place, the thing that he's been working towards since Genesis chapter three. Okay, now let's get to the line that on the surface is quite unsettling. He punishes the children for the sin of the parents. Now, what could this possibly mean? Let me just start, and I probably should have done this the first week now that I think about it. It's not what it seems like at face value. Like when you read this at face value, we're not ancient Hebrews, so we don't really understand what God is doing in this moment. My bad, I should have said that the first week. For those of you who keep coming back week after week, like what's going on with that? Just leaving you on the edge of your seat. So how do we know that at face value, this is not what God is saying? Well, Moses, who's the writer of Exodus, Exodus 34, verse seven, is actually the writer of Deuteronomy. And this is what he goes on to say in Deuteronomy. He says, fathers shall not be put to death for their children nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Now, Jeremiah, a prophet, goes on later to interpret Exodus 34, verse seven, and this is what he says, the prophet Jeremiah. He says, and he's quoting Exodus 34, he says, you show love to the thousands and you bring punishment for the parents' sins and to the lives of their children. He's quoting it, and then this is what he says, his interpretation. He says, you reward each person according to their conduct as their deeds deserve. Okay, so if God is not saying, hey, if I cheat on my taxes this year, he's gonna dish out divine punishment on my great grandkids, like what in the world is he saying? Well, there's three things that, that I, wanna, I wanna kind of pull out of this. Number one, parents' sins has consequences for their children. If you're taking notes, parents' sins has consequences for their children. Number two, sin runs in the family. And number three, because Yahweh is just, he will continue to punish sin in each and every generation until it's gone. And if you're thinking, man, Andrew, those are awesome. Don't worry, I didn't come up with them, I read them. <laughs> so number one, parent sin has consequences for the children. This is probably the most obvious, maybe the most natural, easy to understand. And I think this is kind of easy for us to see on a number of levels that your sin has consequences for the people around you, period. So one of the most obvious, and I think probably most widespread examples of this is when mom and dad get a divorce. What happens? The parents aren't the only ones who face and experience the fallout. The children experience the pain and the brokenness that follows. Grief, trust issues, insecurity, messy holidays. Some of you all... You're sitting here and you're like, I know this firsthand. This was not God's divine punishment on you. This was simply the consequences of the sin from your parents. When you sin, there are consequences for others around you. Now, number two, sin runs in the family. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this in yourself or you've probably noticed it in people around you. It's a little bit easier to do that. But... One generation's sin will become the next generation's sin. For example, uh, if you have a parent who is uh, abusing alcohol, abuses alcohol, they're three to four times more likely to have children that abuse alcohol. Yes, like genetics, literal physical genetics are a part of this, but environmental genetics play a part in this too. You see, like kids are paying attention. They're, they're soaking things up. They're noticing things that you don't even realize they're noticing. And if I had to guess from your experience, we were all kids at one time, you probably picked up on way more than you realize. 
who you are is way more a product of the people you are around than you probably realize. I realize that each year that I get older, I'm like, oh, wow, that part of who I am, not just by accident, it's because of X, Y, Z. It's because of so-and-so who did this to me. That's why I'm doing this. Like, we're a product of the people we spend our time around. So if mom and dad are, are gossips, if they're constantly gossiping, guess what? There's probably gonna be kids who are gossips. If mom and dad are short-tempered and angry, guess what? You're probably gonna find kids who are short-tempered and angry. If mom or dad has, has hidden sin in the closet that they don't bring into the light, guess what? You're probably gonna have kids who have sin in the closet that don't bring it into the light. I think this is important for all of us to reflect upon. The point I wanna make here is you pass down who you are. You pass down who you are. Now this is true on a, like a biological level, but for those who don't have biological children, you're not married, like, this is true for any discipling relationship you find yourself in. For any kind of discipling relationship, this is true. Yes, your words, they are important. Your words carry weight, but it's who you are. Hear me out, it's who you are. What your character is that they will learn from more than anything else. It will be the thing they inherit more than anything else. So why am I inviting us to reflect upon this? You're like, man, this seems like bad news, Andrew. No, it's not. It's good news. To spend some serious time and contemplation and reflection here, to ask yourself the question, okay, where am I carrying sin from previous generations? Where am I carrying an unhealthy pattern from my parents? Where am I perpetuating sin? Why, why is this a good exercise to do with God? Well, it doesn't have to continue with you. It doesn't have to continue with you. You can be the generation where that sin dies. You can be the start of a new story. By God's grace, and it takes his grace, we do not have to perpetuate sin to the next generation. Like father, like son, like mother, like daughter doesn't have to be your story when it comes to the places of sin and brokenness in their lives. My dad is the perfect example of this. He grew up in a broken home. I mean, a broken home. Divorced parents, alcoholic father, unbelieving family. He's been married for almost 40 years. Loves God deeply has two kids that are following Jesus. I look at that, I think only God. Like only God and praise God that he chose not to perpetuate the sin of the generation before him. And neither do you. You don't have to, it is possible. But it takes reflecting and contemplation and asking God to help you understand these places in your life. And then it takes you bringing it to God fully. It takes you allowing Jesus to come all the way in it takes you sharing this with your community. It takes you allowing the Holy Spirit to bring about healing in your life. It takes you discipline, walking in the light, choosing a different path for your children and their children. It's possible in the name of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit, and that can start today. So that's number two. Number three, 
God will continue to punish sin in each and every generation. So both one and two are true. Sin runs in the family, has consequences for other people. But honestly, I think this, like, at its, at its heart is what, what God's getting at here. So if the son or the daughter continues sin of the parents, he will work to get rid of that generation's sin and evil. You have to remember, God's end goal is to rid the world of sin and evil. And so it means each and every generation, each and every generation must be accountable for their actions. They don't get off the hook because they're saying, hey, my parents did it, so did I. Yeah, you're accountable for your actions. Okay, now that last line, to the third and the fourth, seems a little harsh, right? Now, this is incredibly profound really significant and a really beautiful picture of who our God is, and I don't want us to miss it. Because we're not ancient Hebrews, we don't understand what's going on here. When the original Hebrew text was translated, the word generation was added. So that word generation is not there in the original language. And what's happening here is scholars, they point out that Exodus 34, six and seven is really poetic in nature. So we don't know ancient Hebrew poetry, but it's really amazing to see what God is doing here. It's a, it's a Hebrew idiom, and that means whatever comes after the word thousands earlier in the verse, so maintaining love to thousands, should come after the third and the fourth. So really how it could read is maintaining love to thousands of generations, punishing the children to the third and the fourth generation, or maintaining love to thousands, punishing the children to the third and the fourth. Now, you're like, all right, great Hebrew lesson there, Andrew. Like, why in the world are you bringing this up? Remember, all of this is helping us understand who God is and what God is like. And so what God is doing, he's, he's giving the original readers this, this word picture of how his justice and how his mercy and interact, how his forgiveness and how his mercy interacts. And so as they're reading this, they would, have, they would have seen a scale. They would have understood the scales of justice. I don't mean the scale like you stand on. I mean the scale like put it up on there. Yeah, like this, this kind of scale. And so God, he, he's, he's given us a picture here of how his mercy and how his justice interact with one another. He says, hey, I maintain love to thousands, thousands of generations I forgive wickedness, rebellion, and sin to thousands of generations, but my judgment, on the other hand, to the third and the fourth. He's given us a picture of how the scales of his justice and his mercy work. You see, both are true about his character, about who he is. But when you read the story of scripture, when you read the story of God, this, this is what you see. This is what it looks like. He forgives over and over and over again. He maintains love to thousands over and over and over again. He gives chance after chance after chance after chance. And then there are moments when his judgment comes. There are moments when his justice comes. And there is a moment when his justice and his judgment will finally come. But this is what the scales of his justice and mercy look like. It's how our brother James, the brother of Jesus, puts it in the New Testament. He says, hey, mercy triumphs over justice. Now, I just wanna kind of close by acknowledging this tension. And you, you can take it down, thanks, Todd. 
this tension between God's mercy and God's justice, God's forgiveness and God's justice. And I want to remind us of how Yahweh God resolves this tension. You see, in the Old Testament, in order to be right with God, you would have to make a sacrifice, a literal animal sacrifice to atone for your sins. And most often that that sacrifice would be a lamb. Now we know through reading the story that this does not go so well. We end up making it very legalistic. We, We make it rigid and we lose the heart behind how God is trying to resolve this tension between his mercy and his justice. Now later on in the gospels, John actually refers to Jesus as the lamb of God. And he says he's gonna be the one who takes away the sins of the world. John, as he's writing this gospel, he's letting us in on who Jesus is, is literally going back to Exodus 34, verse seven, to say, hey, Yahweh God in the flesh is gonna resolve this tension once and for all. This is how Paul puts it. He said, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Paul is saying, Jesus's death is the resolve to the dilemma of God's mercy and justice. The cross is an expression of Yahweh's mercy, his way of forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, but it's also an expression of his justice, the fact that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And it's in this moment we see more clearly than ever before what Yahweh is like. And I quote, the reconciliation of God's mercy and justice and the death of Jesus is the ultimate expression of God's character. The tension is finally resolved. It's in God's nature to show mercy and forgive, but it's also in his nature to deal with sin. And these two parts of who God is, seemingly at odds for so many years, finally come together in beautiful harmony on the cross. So Exodus 34 is both this hope and this warning. Hey, God is just, and judgment is coming, but God chooses to take this justice and wrath out on himself through Jesus. And what this does for us is this opens the door wide of forgiveness. This opens the door wide of life with him forever. The world that we talked about, the picture we get in Revelation 21 of a world without evil, without sin, in perfect harmony with God forever. For anyone who repents and believes that Jesus Christ is Lord. For anyone. He's willing to forgive anyone for anything because Yahweh God is so much greater and so much better than anybody could ever put into words. One of the things that we do to remind ourselves each week 
of, of this reality, that he is both merciful and forgiving. He is also just as we come to the table. We come to the table of forgiveness. We come to the table of mercy, acknowledging we need it and we're thankful for it. And this morning, as we take communion together, I actually just wanna invite us into a time of reflection on your own, where you're at right now, and then we're gonna close and worship together. So I wanna invite you to grab the communion elements. If you don't have them, you can grab them. And as Brandon plays, I just wanna invite us into a time of reflection to close out our time together. And as you hold the communion elements, I wanna invite you just to close your eyes and don't yell like the kids, although they seem to be having a great time in there. Different vibe in there, I guess. Some of y'all are like, I wanna go take communion with them. Why so solemn? I wanna, I wanna invite us just as we sit here with, with the elements that remind us of Jesus' body and Jesus' blood to reflect on a couple of things. The first is gonna be just reflecting upon patterns or sin in our own life that maybe we are carrying from the previous generation. So as Brandon plays, I just wanna invite you to close your eyes and just say, God, is there, is there any sin is there any place of brokenness? Is there any unhealthy pattern that you want to break me free of, that you want to set me free from? So I just invite you right now with God just to ask him. Bring things to mind. Here's the good news. God does not reveal that which he doesn't want to also heal. So if something's coming to mind and you're feeling any sort of condemnation, that's not the spirit of God. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. He wants to bring freedom. He wants to bring life. So I just want to invite you now just to metaphorically just like open hands, give it, give it to God. And Father, I wanna pray for each and everything that's come to mind in each and every person here right now. If there's something on the mind or heart of a person this morning, I, I just wanna ask for you to just begin the healing process right now. By the power of your spirit, praise God. Praise you, God, for bringing it into the light. Because things that are in the light, you want to heal, you want to restore. The second thing I, I want to invite you to reflect upon is the love of God.
says that he maintains love to thousands. He maintains love to thousands. He is abounding in love and he, he wants to maintain that love. And so if you are someone right now who, who feels like they have not experienced the love of God or maybe has grown cold to the love of God, I'm just, I'm just gonna ask God to come and pour out his love. So God, I'm coming to you, Yahweh, asking by the power of your spirit to just pour out your love in this place right now. For those that have never received your love, I ask by the power of your spirit, they would be able to receive your love, to know your love. I'm gonna ask you would seal that love up. You would seal it up by the power of your spirit. And God, for those who aren't maybe even necessarily feeling it right now this morning, I ask that they would begin to experience it as they step out of this place, as they begin to live their life. They would experience it through other people. They would experience it in their quiet times like they never have before. And Jesus, we acknowledge that it is because of you we can come with this hope. And together as a whole church, we say, amen. Let's take the bread and the cup right now. And then I wanna invite us to stand for two more songs. And may these songs that we sing not just be empty words, but, but may they be the prayers of our hearts as we close out our time together this morning. So as you take the communion, I invite you to stand and sing as Brandon leads us.